Hi, I'm Eric. And I'm Joe, and this is Speaking of Race. Today on the podcast, we're doing something really unique and exciting. We have a group of scholars together, all of whom are trained as anthropologists, many of whom are trained as interdisciplinary social science scholars as well, here to talk about questions around teaching, about race and inequality in the social sciences. Everyone who's here is here because they research and have researched for many, many years questions around race and inequality. All are thinking deeply about how to teach these topics. They represent different career stages, different institutional affiliations, different personal backgrounds, different geographic areas, different training. And a couple of them are past guests on Speaking of Race. So listeners, you may recognize some of their names. With us today in alphabetical order are Lance Gravely, an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Florida. Also, John L. Jackson, Jr., who's dean of the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania, also an anthropologist by training. Stephanie McClure is here. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Alabama. And finally, Yolanda Moses is here, professor in the Department of Anthropology at UC Riverside and past president of the American Anthropological Association. So welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Good to be here. I'm really happy that you all are here. And I just want to take a second to recognize the time and energy that goes into participating in something like this and to really thank you on behalf of the podcast and all our listeners for being willing to invest the time to be here today. So very briefly, before we get into our topic, I'd like each of you to just tell us a little bit about the research that you're currently doing. I know many of you are engaged in new work. And we might as well start with Lance and go through alphabetically, right? Okay, sure. Okay. (laughs) Sure. Well, I'm a medical anthropologist, and most of my research focuses on the health effects of racism. I've I've focused primarily on uh, high blood pressure or hypertension in the African diaspora, And the sort of twin areas of focus for me are are how racism harms health and how it misleads medicine and how medicine perpetuates a lot of false ideas about race and genes and and bodies. So lately, a lot of my attention has been focused on on tracking the discourse around COVID-19 and trying to push back against some of the 19th century ideas about race that continue to circulate in this context and and then thinking how the pandemic uh, might exacerbate some of the underlying inequalities as, as we're seeing play out now as well. Awesome. Thank you. John, would you like to go next? Yep. Uh, I'm a full-time administrator now, which means I don't get a ton of time to do a lot of new research, but I try to squeeze it in. So I'm trained as an urban anthropologist, an anthropologist of race and religion, and also do a lot of work in visual anthropology. And so I've been completing a few films. One is about uh, to come out later this year on the lives of Black gay men in the South Hmm. with E. Patrick Johnson, based at Northwestern. And I'm trying to finish a book that tries to make an argument about the underlying links between conspiracy theorizing as a genre and understanding scholarly and vernacular of race and racial ideology. And those are two two projects that I'm completing right now. Fantastic. Thank you. And I am involved in a project right now called uh, Communivax. This is Stephanie McClure. Um, And Communivax is a multi-site rapid ethnographic project that is concerned with equitable COVID-19 vaccine distribution in the United States. We are looking at it in two ways. We're looking at both the systems level 
and, and then also at the community level and really looking at how systems and communities talk to each other, how they understand each other and how they operate to efficaciously deliver the COVID-19 vaccine. And you won't be surprised to find that you don't have to be trying very hard to, to have a disparate rollout, right? All you have to do is run the playbook mm -hmm. that's been in existence for the past 150 years, and there you go. And also, it's encouraging because there are individuals and groups who are really trying to change the story. So this connects with my work in health disparities. Um, I've been interested in racial and ethnic health disparities for a long time. Thank you, Stephanie. And Yolanda Moses. <laughs> and I, uh, I have two projects. One is looking at how race travels, and I'm uh, working with a group of Aboriginal Indigenous folks in Australia on understanding how race operates in two different settler colonial environments historically, and how Australia also has shifted to being more integrated, multicultural, what have you. The second thing, and it's really interesting how Several of us are focusing on COVID. I'm also one of the mm -hmm. co-PIs on a huge grant we have at the university to build a research center to focus on health disparities, centering the people who are the receivers of this disparate health care. So that's my applied work. <laughs> well, thank you all. That's fantastic. Um, and I think there are some really interesting connections there between questions around yeah. COVID, around of course, inequality, broadly speaking, and health and well-being, which I think segues well into sort of getting into our topic for today. The idea for this episode came about because at my institution, and I imagine at your institutions too, especially in the wake of the BLM protests last summer and in the era of COVID, there's been calls quite publicly to sort of decolonize our teaching across the social sciences and even across academia more broadly. And so I've had queries from listeners of the podcast saying, okay, well, what, what exactly does that mean in practice? Like, what would it actually look like to decolonize teaching? And of course, you know, this, this idea, especially in anthropology, the discipline that many of us here today are trained in is not new. Um, Faye Harrison's 1991 volume actually called decolonizing anthropology has now been around for, you know, 30 years. And so uh, I'm excited to think with you about sort of what what it would mean to decolonize teaching um, and research in the social sciences now. Yeah. So the first thing we're going to have to do is define what we even mean by decolonizing any particular field. And then the other thing that we really want to address is we've seen really, um, you know, since this past fall, a real big backlash, mostly coming from seats of power around the country against things like critical race theory appearing in the curriculum at all. So how do we do this? How both do we decolonize pedagogically in individual classes? And then at an administrative level, what can you do about curriculum in general in order to decolonize not just anthropology, but all the humanities and social sciences and the natural sciences as well? That's a small ask. That's a, that's a giant <laughs> question. Eric just put out all the questions at once. All the questions once, just go. <laughs> so, so wait, let's start with the beginning of your question, Eric, which was, what do we mean when we say decolonize? Yeah, let's just start with that. Okay. In a way, I think it's probably 
akin to all the different incarnations of what current activists now imagine they mean when they say, say, defunding the police, right? It's one of these umbrella terms that underneath it covers a lot of different potential terrain. Um, I think often people are speaking sometimes both literally and metaphorically. Hmm. Um, When I think of decolonizing, at least in the context of academia, I think it's about trying to make sure we're drawing attention to and problematizing all the assumptions about power, who has it, how it circulates, um, even assumptions about what counts as scholarship and knowledge. Like all the things we take for granted should all, in a way, be scare quoted. And so decolonizing anthropology or decolonizing teaching or decolonizing anything starts with a presupposition that says there are frameworks of mind and of practice that need to be fundamentally challenged, even though they're the very concepts we use to think with and the ground we stand on from which we pontificate about whatever. And I think that's a version of, for me at least, at its core, what decolonization is trying to flag for people, this idea that there's something so fundamental about what we take for granted in these institutional spaces that we have to start by challenging if we want to have a chance of reimagining that, of recalibrating them in some significant way. Yeah, you know, I would I would agree to build on that, you know, and it's like, what is the canon? Who, who created it? Uh, is it written in stone somewhere that it can't be changed? And if it, there's any place where it can be challenged, it is in, in a university. And I think this is why, one of the reasons why universities get attacked is because we are teaching our students how to push back on these assumptions and to ask critical questions. And hmm. part of what happens when you invite people in and you teach them to think, the outcome are going to be challenges to things that do not ring true to them. And how do you equip students to see that it's okay to do it and it's okay to get pushback? That's the other thing, right? I actually don't have anything to add. I think that John (laughs) and Yolanda have pretty much, you know, capped it. Just that sort of rigorous interrogation, but then also the attempt, and I think this is where people get caught up, to kind of upend and reconstitute those assumptions and those perceptions and those practices. And I think I think we got the rigorous interrogation part down, or at least we're we're pretty good at it, right? But the upend and reconstitute, I think, is the challenge. It's like, so then what do we make after we've sort of shaken the whole thing up and reveal the inconsistencies and the lies. Um, then how do we go about saying, you know, this is what we think we know with the emphasis on think, and this is what we think we ought to do. And how do we get that sort of accepted as a legitimate basis on which to move forward? I think that's where people get hung up. And it's a process, right? Because when you, for example, in my undergraduate classes, I have white students who ask, well, if we have these kinds of organizations, why can't we have a white studies organization or a white studies program? And it's like, you need to be able to answer that, to say that, you know, whiteness, then you have to get into talking about what whiteness is, and it's unmarked, and it's the air we breathe, 
And so Mm -hmm. even though they themselves individually are not privileged, because we have lots of working class uh, kids, first generation of all kinds, even though they're not privileged, the system has privileged them. And that is such a hard concept for them to understand. Students of color get it pretty good. (laughs) And it's that awareness. And I think that's why with Black Lives Matter, you had so many young white kids in the movement because of the things we're teaching them in our classes. They're internalizing it and saying, why did I not know about this? They're outraged too, many of them. So to, to your point, Stephanie, I think that's where some of the hope is that we're creating groups of people who can take all of this and create something, hopefully, that is going to be the kind of pluralistic democracy that we say we want. And, and, and those of us who have had administrative positions in the university know how difficult that can be sometimes, too, because sometimes they want to put it on the individuals to do all the work or hire the one person mm-hmm. in the university, the diversity officer, yes. to do the work. And yes. so everything else stays the same. That is not decolonizing. <laughs> That's the plantation by another name. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. So real brass tacks, what does a classroom look like if it's being decolonized? What kinds of assignments would you give that are different? What kinds of readings would you assign that are different? Or what other kinds of things might you do in a, in a course that would look different than an older version of an anthropological classroom not decolonized would look? What I've tried to do, because our department has actually officially taken a position on decolonization, and we have a committee that's examining you know, decolonization processes and, and what we mean by that, that involves students. And, and we're looking at things like if we decide you know, on a set of actions that we're going to take, and then we want to have our students actually evaluate us and say, is this a thing that you consider to be worthwhile? So departmentally, we're doing that. But in the classroom, we haven't sort of prescribed what is to be done by individual instructors because, you know, nobody would tolerate that in academia. But, um, but what I've done in my classes, and I teach ethnography, culture theory, introduction to cultural anthropology, and race, ethnicity, and human variation, the class that Joe used to teach when she was here as well. So like race is everywhere in everything that I teach. And so there've been a couple of readings, one by Michelle Trujillo, Anthropology in the Savage Slot that I routinely have the students read and they struggle with it because the language is a little bit difficult. But I want to sort of ground what they're learning as anthropologists in this idea that the juxtaposition between, you know, the West and the other is a made up thing, right? And that it was made up in order for the West to define itself, that the savage is a creation of the West, just as the West is a creation of the West. And so we start out with that idea and then I try to bring that back in, the sort of fallacy of that assumption and the effects of that assumption. So in ethnography, we're reading Claire Wendland's A Heart for the Work. It's about um, medical education in, in Malawi in the early part of the 21st century. And one of the things that we did this week was look at whether or not what women was trying to do is to create 
this sort of contrast between you know African biomedicine and Western biomedicine. And I had a student very beautifully um, illustrate that that was not at all what she was trying to do. But what she was trying to show is that the fallacy is that we think that medical education is one thing in one way, that it's a moral order, but in reality, it's a moral economy. It's negotiated. It's relational. It's mm-hmm. dynamic. It changes. And while that dynamism um, and that negotiation might look different in a low-resource setting than in a high-resource setting, the illusion is ours. So that's how I approach it. I say, let's use the tools of anthropology to question what it is that we think we know about what it means to look at the other. I I think you said that perfectly. If I wanted to distill down an approach that I think is maybe going to sound overly simplistic, but I think can be a very profound shift pedagogically, is I think decolonizing starts with actually listening to your students, right? There's this hypodermic assumption about the scholar having all the knowledge, right? And they can sort of, you know, hold court and and disperse that knowledge to the willing student supplicants who will take it hopefully and do something interesting with it. But thinking about that dynamic as more of a two-way street and genuinely trying to understand what your students are trying to get out of the experience, what they need from it, and trying to hear to incorporate that into what the dynamics will eventually turn out to be, I think is important. I think in terms of what to assign, for me, it often depends on the kind of course I'm teaching. So I want to assign pieces that I think will challenge the students, often actually challenging them on what they think they already know and take for granted about the world. And that goes for whatever kind of ideological place you, you land on in terms of the spectrum of possibility of beliefs we have at our disposal, it's like, how do you get students to just be critical? And it starts with being critical of themselves. Um, And I think it's easy to be critical of other people. It's easy to imagine, you know, you can deconstruct everyone else's bad ideas. And I think decolonizing starts with this mindset that says you have to apply that criticality, not just to the enemies out there, you imagine, but to the enemies inside that you've already internalized that often make it difficult for you to think outside of the boxes that are prefabricated and preconditioned that sometimes don't allow us to imagine possibilities that don't already exist in the world in front of us. And to me, that's a version of what it might look like when I'm thinking about how I approach um, what my agenda is for a course or for a particular course session. Um, It's really about listening to my students and trying to press them to think differently because what I want them actually to do, I know I'm successful if they actually get me to think a little bit differently about Mm -hmm. even the stuff I imagine I'm an expert on. Yeah, there's so much that John just said that resonates with me. This semester, I developed a a new to me course on whiteness and we can maybe talk about why I've pivoted in that direction a little bit as well. It's, I think, related to this discussion about um, decolonization. But in the first week of the semester, I had students read an excerpt from Bell Hook's book, Teaching uh, to Transgress. And, it, you know, she talks about the contrast between usual ways of approaching education, which tend to be punitive and tend to be the practice of domination. And what she aspires for instead is education is the practice of liberation, of, of promise and possibility and potential. And You know, I think many of the standard practices that we take for granted are really more about domination than they are about liberation. So the way that 
we tend to use grades in a punitive way to try to encourage students. Or, or now you see growing forms of surveillance. As we've moved online, you see growing forms of surveillance in the classroom where the job of professors, some some administrators might have you think, is to, to serve as police of, of students' behaviors. And this is really corrosive to, to what we do. And it starts in K through 12. It doesn't start in the university. Uh, I see this with, you know, I've got two kids who are in high school and they struggle with the, the way that grades are conditioning them, disciplining them to, in, in ways that really stifle their creativity and stifle their their growth and understanding. Mm. So one of the one of the really remarkable things this semester as we have continually every week returned back to what we read from Hooks about trying to create a community of learners okay. that's not hierarchical where it's not this, you know, she talks about the banking system of education where I've got the knowledge and I'm going to deposit it into their account and they're going to regurgitate it. It's not that we're co-constructing it, right? Yes. But it's been amazing to see how much they struggle with that. Because they're used to being dominated, because that's right. They're the, how they have learned to be students, you know, rests on assumptions about a particular role between the professor and the student, and it feels like it's a constant work in progress to empower them to say, "Hey, let's build this thing together," uh, because I've got some things to learn here as well, and um, it's sparked moments of real joy, and you know, has made me love teaching more. But it, but it also has me sort of bumping up against the broader institutional constraint of, of how we teach in general. Right. So how, how do you handle grading then, Lance? Well, you know, that's interesting because here we are in the third semester of pandemic life. And um, I find myself becoming more and more relaxed about grading. In fact, one of the books on my priority stack here is a book edited by anthropologist Susan Bloom on ungrading, sort of moving away from it in general. Last spring, when we moved online in the initial lockdown, I basically said, you all have done a great job up to this point. Everybody's getting an A. Let's not worry about that. Let's, it was a course on medical anthropology. I said, let's, you know, medical anthropology is happening around us right now. Uh, Let's dig into what's going on. And what was amazing is that I found once I took grades off the table and I said, you've all gotten A's, it's fine. They dug in deeper. You know, they they hmm. still came to our Zoom classes and they did the work and they brought their ideas and and it, it became less about everybody fulfilling their obligations under the syllabus and more about the learning piece. Yeah, I found in the in the fall as well, everybody was under a lot of strain. There was a period of like five weeks when I had seven people in my extended family who had COVID and students were struggling families losing jobs and houses and having, you know, people get sick. And there was a moment where I was like, what are we, what are we doing here? And so we were, we came up on the Thanksgiving break and I said to the students in my race and racism class, okay, if you're happy with your grade in the class where it stands right now, then when we break for Thanksgiving, you can be, you can be done. But if you want to keep trying to work on things, you can, you can keep contributing. And again, what amazed me was that almost all the students locked in their grades where it was. But it's not like they stopped coming to class. It's not like they stopped doing the work. Some of them, you know, even still submitted the final project, even though their grade was had been locked in weeks earlier. And I found that it just actually led to a much deeper kind of engagement 
with the students when we took the sort of structure I had initially put in place in the syllabus. When yes. we just took that away, it was better. Yes. And so I feel like I'm never going to be the same kind of teacher. I feel like <laughs> I feel like the pandemic really exposed a lot of the nonsense that I did just because that's what we do. Yeah. Thank you, Lance, and everybody for for helping me call up something. And that is I teach the introduction to core theory in anthropology in a year-long series for our first-year grad student. And I had a class of 12 students, and six of them were Zooming in from all over the world. What I had wanted to do didn't make any sense. So we ended up talking about anthropological theory and theorists, and I said to everybody, I want you to bring in readings that have inspired you and we're going to incorporate those and you are going to be the teachers and you're going to lead us in the discussions and and what was so exciting for me is that we had an archaeology student from Japan who was wanted to study something in uh, in terms of Maya iconography because that's one of the things we do in our department but he ended up bringing in articles about race in Japan. And we entered that into our discussion and it just opened up this global conversation, again, about something I'm interested in. But everybody was bringing in something. There was a, a student from Brazil who talked about what was happening there with the political situation. And it just made the anthropological theories come alive in ways that they would not have before. And like you, Lance, I'm never going to teach that co- that course the same way again. Hearing all your stories really encourages me. And it makes me think that there is um, an interesting thing that happens in this process of unlearning yes. things, that it sounds like you're bringing your students through a process of questioning themselves. Then it leads me to a really big structural question which is those experiences sound like they require small classrooms and close contact between the faculty member and the student where there can be honest exchanges. And yet very many of our universities, including the University of Alabama and other big state schools are set up in such a way where we have 200 or 300 or 400 students in a classroom. And if we really want the students who would otherwise never encounter challenges to their worldviews to be challenged even just one time, it's most likely gonna happen in that enormous setting with hundreds of other students, rather than just the students who choose to enter into a particular course on a theme of race with about 20 or 30 other people who are already starting to think those lines through, right? Is there a compromise? Is there a way to reach out to the students who would never ever choose to engage in a course on race at all? Is it that we just require every single student in the university to take Stephanie's course, which means that Stephanie never sleeps (laughs) (laughs) or we clone Stephanie or something like that? Is that the only way that we're really going to do this at a broad scale? Or are there other things that we can explore that are less resource intensive or something like that? Hmm. piggybacking on that or or maybe even rephrasing it might be like what are some really basic first steps 
it's not quite what you're saying, Eric, but that was also something I wanted to get at a little bit, you know, for people who are just kind of coming to the table of thinking about this or for people who are resource strapped, like you're saying, or who are teaching giant lecture classes, some like best practices maybe, or recommendations about how to, as you said, Eric, sort of push this out to larger groups of people. It's a great question. A, a couple of quick early thoughts, at least. One is just to point out that the question about how we do this in some ways maybe at scale, right, for larger courses and across um, an entire campus is just a reminder that the question implicit in this idea of decolonizing teaching isn't just about pedagogy, it's also about curriculum. Mm -hmm. right? so, so it's about making sure that the class that Stephanie teaches or that Lance teaches isn't the only chance they have mm -hmm. to get this. Or if it is, it should be mandatory, right? So in, in the, the school I was dean of before I came to Annenberg, we had a mandatory course on American racism that every single student who wanted to get an MSW degree had to take. Right. And that that was a commitment. But that was an idea that said, you know, we want to make sure everyone is exposed to this. And it's a, it was a two semester sequence as well. So one thing is about wow. not putting the burden just on one course mm -hmm. or the faculty who are, are focused on this as their research emphasis. But I think the other piece of it is, you know, I think there are tons of things. This is me maybe trying to make lemonade out of lemons a little bit. But I do believe there are things we were forced to learn over the last 12 months in this virtual everything environment that should make us better at teaching these larger classes. Mm. Because now we have a facility with all of this new technology that we wouldn't have had, had we not Good had point. to deal with this moment. And I, so, so, you know, we used to always talk about flipped classrooms. I don't even yeah. think students faculty knew what that meant. Right. Now I think they at least know what that means. Yeah, yeah. And so there are ways to use the technology to take the pressure off this more conventional sense of lecturing to a large course. Mm -hmm. saying, well, what are the other ways I can play with the possibilities as a scholar if I can offload the lecturing to something they can look at on their own time and use this time and move together to break them up into groups, do other things, to work on just the kind of thing you're mm -hmm. talking about. So I think the key is we shouldn't, quote unquote, ghettoize this into a couple of courses here and there. This should be curricular. It should be something the university, qua university, is thinking about and finding a way to make sure every student is exposed to in ways that can help them to think critically about these important mm -hmm. ideas. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we're doing at UCR in our department, we have a critical mass of faculty who want to start a African diaspora emphasis within our department. We already have an emphasis in medical anthropology. So that means... Uh, and I might say it's being pushed by a few faculty, but mostly by grad students who basically say, we want to be on the cutting edge of what's happening when we get our degree. Mm -hmm. We are all becoming learners. And we've created a repository where we're all putting readings and articles, and we're going to have a brown bag series where graduate students and faculty are going to be leading each other. The goal will be, yes, there will be four or five faculty who will be responsible for the core courses in this emphasis. But every course in the department is going to reinforce our medical anthropology emphasis and our African diaspora emphasis. So that's something we made a commitment to do as a result of what has happened last year. You know, a lot of colleges and universities mm -hmm. don't know what to do. And we just said, well, mm -hmm. we're going to bite the bullet and create a new department with a whole new focus. 
So it's a long-term kind of thing. The other thing I'd like to say is that when we teach our large classes, I love your idea, John, about incorporating the technology, but they also form relationships with the teaching assistants. And the teaching assistants have to be a part of the process, right? And we all have to work together for those 500 students. That's what we do. Uh, that that they are learning the kinds of things you want them to learn, and that they become the center of the of the learning process. And that is an intentional kind of commitment, which means, and I thought I'd never say this. I've embraced the A word, and that's assessment. Oh, I was I was waiting for something much more no, shocking. No, no, no. Oh, maybe we're going for abolition. No. I didn't see it. Yeah, assessment right, coming. right. So, no, so that what that means is that before we even get going, it's like, what is it that we want these kids to know, and how are we going to know we've given it to them? Okay. Because that's different than saying, "This is what I want to tell you." <laughs> This is how I'm going to tell you. That's been an epiphany for me. And don't think an old dog can't learn new tricks because they can. <laughs> yeah, and you know, um, I assume, uh, Yolanda, that you're also talking about a, a way of approaching assessment that works regardless of the class size. So exactly. Uh, just, th- just thinking back to Eric's earlier question, my, my race and racism class has 140 students face-to-face and another 200 online. So it's... You know, it's a pretty big class. Wow! Wow! Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm hopeful about the 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 way that Yolanda's talking about assessment, the way John's talking about technology. I think technology has, seems like a really important piece of this. Even you know, 15 years ago when I was teaching that 700 student class, I integrated uh, classroom response systems or clickers into the class so that mm-hmm. uh, even with a class of 700 students, I could still initiate a discussion. I could ask attitudinal or behavioral questions, not content, right? But more about their own experience. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of being able to to display then in real time, the distribution of attitudes or behaviors liberates students to to talk because they realize that they're not the only ones who have a particular attitude or a, a belief or have done a particular thing. It was maybe also partly like my chance to feel like I was a talk show host walking up and down the aisles with a microphone, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you know that same that same kind of thing works in other in other ways. So thinking about classroom response systems, thinking about I often will um, just put a QR code up on the screen that sends people to a a survey, open ended or closed ended, that they can respond to. So it gets people, it gives the students a chance to think in a large class about what they want to say, where they position themselves, and then I can display the aggregate results, and then it opens up discussion. And I find that it opens up often very rich discussion. So, you know, my student evaluations in the race and racism class, probably the single most consistent thing people say is that they value the space for discussion. You know, even though it's 140 students in a lecture hall, a lot of them say, we don't really have a lot of other places in our life where we can talk about race and racism. And what they value about the class is the ability to to have have that kind of space. So I think you can also do it even in, in big classes when you have to. Yeah, you know, one thing that um, a lot of faculty I've spoken with have said has been kind of a silver lining of teaching via Zoom or other platforms is exactly the kind of thing that you're talking about, Lance, and that I think you were alluding to a little bit with the use of technology, John, is 
the fact that so many students, in, in my experience at least, who wouldn't feel comfortable raising their hand and speaking in a lecture will chat in to responses to questions. So I've been thinking about how can I sort of preserve that chat ability even when I'm back in the live classroom because my participation has been through the roof. Like, you know, in my larger classes, I've, I've seriously had, granted, I, I require it, but even when I require it, normally students don't always participate. When I require it and they have the option to chat, they all do yeah. it. And I've had a lot more diversity of perspectives represented in my classes through that modality. So I've been thinking hmm. about ways to kind of like preserve that as I go back into live teaching. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot too. And I think it also extends to our interactions with students outside of the classroom. So yeah. uh, I no longer call my office hours office hours. I call them student hours to really emphasize that this is time that I set aside in my schedule for you all. And during the pandemic, participation at student hours has been like I've never experienced before. Like basically every minute of my student hour time is booked. And I think it's partially a matter of just how we present that to students. Like this is time for you. And then it's also, I think, just the ease of the virtual connection. You know, nobody has to go into the basement of the building where the anthropology department is. They can just hop on Zoom at any time. And so that's another way of supplementing with a large class is, you know, I still feel like I'm getting to know students better in some ways because of that extra, that extra time and the ease of the virtual connection. Yeah, fantastic. Eric, you had one last question you wanted to ask? Uh, yeah, in, in my massive opening question, <laughs> one of the things that I was really interested in seeing your perspective on or hearing your perspective on was, I don't know if you're familiar with what happened at, at Boise State, and the beginnings of this pushback against critical race theory being taught in the classroom and even having diversity spoken about curricularly anywhere at a university. Will you summarize it quickly for our listeners? Yes, please. <laughs> um, I'm trying to remember the nature of the course, but I believe it was uh, an ethnic studies course where they specifically addressed critical race theory and it was a required course. And a, a student felt called out individually, uh, convicted individually by the faculty member, complained to administration, and administration cut all of the courses taught across the university about diversity, just shut them down immediately. Now, supposedly this was videoed, the, the, the embarrassment of the student was videoed, but the administration didn't actually even see the video before making the decision to absolutely shut down all of those courses. Now, we know that the, the Idaho state legislature has been trying to stop these sorts of courses for a while. Oh, yeah. I think the Chronicle just reported that they are restarting some of the courses back up again at some of the campuses. But the question is, in, an, in this environment where there's this backlash to actually doing the very things that we're talking about that need to be done more, how does that get done in a way that both challenges students, but then doesn't get referred up to the state legislature. Well, you know, all of this is playing out in a larger political context. And I would say that this is one of the last ditch efforts that folks in power who don't want to see the change happening in terms of demography, in terms of a pluralistic kind of America, they have power over the budget and the purse strings. And we've seen 43 states already put restrictive voting laws mm -hmm. on the books. 
So another way to shut down the information, the knowledge that is coming out of our universities is to shut the budget. It's happened in Tennessee. It's happened in other universities where the legislators or the boards of trustees of the universities Mm -hmm. don't like the challenges because they're challenging the status quo. And so it's a teachable moment for us to talk to our students about it in terms of the power dynamics around race. That's what we're seeing. I think we have to be honest with our students that part of what we're seeing is a pushback against who gets to control the knowledge Mm -hmm. in a democracy. If universities were first established to cater to a certain class, there's a whole different group of people that are in our universities today who are not supposed to be here. And they're changing knowledge means and what research means. Hmm. And that is, that is very disconcerting to, the, to power hmm. structures who want to maintain the status quo. And I think if we don't hmm. talk about power with our students, we're not giving them tools to understand what's happening around them and what they hmm. can do about it? What kind of agency will our students have? Yeah, you know, I'm in a public university where our governor gave a press conference a couple of weeks ago uh, saying that critical race theory would not be taught in our K through 12 schools as if it has been uh, taught. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. So it was, right. it was a, you know, it was a display of, of, of power and um, and that's really all it was. We can also use these as teachable moments. So in my whiteness class this semester, in the first week of the semester, we read Trump's executive order and the OMB directive that highlighted critical race theory, something mm-hmm. that wasn't going to be allowed or funded in the in the government. And it was a chance for the students to move from the what can seem abstract theoretical discussion about these issues to, yes. okay, here is a Things are in flux right now. Here's how it's playing That's out. Right. Let's read this and break it down. And they can see it happening in real time, right? Yeah. Just like the yeah. George Floyd trial that's on TV right now. Mm-hmm. That's a part of our racial history. Mm-hmm. And and so many of my white students have said, I never understood that connection between the police and the African-American community until I learned about how policing started in this country as a part of slave patrols, right? Mm. And so to your point, Lance, there is a body of knowledge that our students need to understand what's happening today. And anthropology can teach them to go deeper and to give them the tools to understand how structural inequalities maintain themselves John, were you going to say something else? Uh, I think I'll just briefly add that I, I do feel like when we are often talking about issues of inclusion or diversity, I like to remind people that, you know, 50,000 feet in the air, mm-hmm. we can all agree. It's a wonderful thing. But once, once you see it in operation, once you drag it down to the bricks and mortar of university policy and practice, you start to see fissures in that. But ultimately, I do think there's a version of what I find helpful that maybe goes back to the point we were talking about earlier um, in these discussions. You know, it's easy in a context like that to simply imagine it's enough to scapegoat the others, right? So we know we're in a hyper-politicized situation. We know the stakes are really high and people have a vested interest. As Yolanda said earlier, 
these institutions weren't built to be inclusive. They were built to be exclusive, right? They were designed that way. Yeah. Right. They still are. Yeah. And there's a version, I think, of what I always try to get students to remember, which is to really understand in a clear way, not in a stereotypical way, not in a way that is easy to dismiss and debunk, to understand what's driving these counter forces, to know in a kind of ethnographically rich and detailed way. Because the only chance of really speaking substantively to the core of what's motivating this pushback against inclusion is to know in fine-grained detail exactly why folks are so terrified of the prospect of that happening. And I think for me, that's often in the classroom a really important thing to model because I think it forces students to think in a much more careful way about why people would breathe the same air they breathe, learn the same kinds of things they're learning and have such diametrically opposed ways of navigating everyday life. Right. And, and I'd like to add, just to sort of circle back to what Lance and John were talking about, about the way in which they approach engaging with their students differently, I think the things that Lance and John have said um, can be married with that. So I used to be a physical therapist and is physical therapists are, re- are sued remarkably infrequently. Not because we don't screw up, but because our patients like us. And you don't sue people that you like, right? And I'm, I'm not trying to make a facile explanation here, but you don't sue people that you have a relationship with that you value. So when you're creating those opportunities for conversation, for deep critical discussion that John is talking about, for, for participation and inclusion that Lance is talking about, then you're creating an environment in which people might be made uncomfortable by the conversation but they're not necessarily going to shut it down because they're actually a part of something because they're actually, they're actually invested. in it. And so I think, I think that in, at least in this group, we have people who are doing that work on whatever scale we're doing it. And it's a, it's a matter of in your asking about solutions, Eric, thinking about how we take that forward. But I do think those deep conversations and that, engagement of students and that valuing of their part in the education and that investment in their learning. I think those things go together. Well said. I think you just wrapped it for us beautifully. I thought that was great. (laughs) That was like everything. So thank you everybody for participating. Lance Gravely, John Jackson, Stephanie McClure, Yolanda Moses. Um, We're so grateful that you were willing to come on and, and chat with us and our listeners and We'll look forward to following your amazing work as it continues. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks again. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. So I'm Eric, the historian of science. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. And you've been listening to Speaking of Race. Find us on Facebook at SOR Podcast, on Twitter and Instagram at Speaking of Race, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.